Welcome back to a brand new episode of Meet St. Louis, the podcast where we take you behind the scenes of your favorite restaurants, breweries, and small businesses. I'm your host, Alexis Zotos with KMOV. You know, St. Louis has a lot of claims to fame. The ones you know about, of course, like we're the gateway to the West, the home of toasted ravioli and gooey butter cake, where things like the waffle cone were invented back in the 1904 World's Fair. But did you know that St. Louis is the home of the first ever cocktail party, or at least the first recorded one? It happened back in 1917 at the home of a fancy St. Louisan in the central to West End. And today, well, there's no shortage of cocktails to be had across our city. This week on the podcast, we're chatting with self-proclaimed cocktail geek, Ted Kilgore. Year in and year out, he is consistently viewed as one of our city's best mixologists. He moved here from Springfield back in 2006 and really ever since then has been shaping and helping grow and create the cocktail scene in St. Louis from Monarch to Taste to now Planter's House. Ted Kilgore talks to us on this episode about how he got started, how he learned it all and really a secret to what it takes to create a really good cocktail. So let's get right to it. Let's meet Ted. joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. So we're sitting inside of kind of the upstairs private room here at Planner's House. Um, describe this room and, and kind of what your vision was for it when you were opening this place. When I first th- started con- thinking about uh, opening my own place, I wanted it to be something that would be a nod to St. Louis in the early days as a lot of bartenders start collecting old books in, in, in the early 2000s when everyone started looking backwards to the first golden age of cocktails. Uh, St. Louis was one of the things that had history. So this is the Bullock Room, which is uh, named after a gentleman named Tom Bullock, who was uh, one of the most famous bartenders in the country from uh, the late 1800s to um, Prohibition. Mm. And he was from St. Louis? He was from the St. Louis, and he also worked at the St. Louis Country Club, and he wrote a book in 1917 uh, that was the ideal bartender. Uh, there's very few copies left uh, out there, but he, he was one of the first uh, uh, African American uh, to actually write a, a cocktail book. Mm-hmm. He also served four presidents. Um, so he was famous for his mint juleps. Oh, okay. He, he actually scandalized one president who went <laughs> under oath, and he said he, Teddy Roosevelt said he was not a drinker, but he said under oath that he only drank part of one of Tom's juleps. And everyone called him a liar because they said no one could just drink part of one. <laughs> I had an opportunity to actually take a look at that book yesterday um, at the Missouri Historical Society. And it's fascinating. You look back and you see all these cocktails that either you haven't heard of or that are still very, very popular today. And it makes you realize just how far back that history of cocktails goes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy. It's the old-fashioned but got basically probably got its name because people didn't like all the fancy things, and so they started asking for an old-fashioned cocktail, which was just basically you know, sweetened whiskey or gin or, or rum or brandy. So, When did you start getting interested in cocktails? I've been bartending since uh, 1998, so I really kind of got caught the bug 
in 2004 when there was a, a gentleman named Del de Graff who wrote uh, the first kind of culinary cocktail book. Um, and that uh, gift of, the, of that book for, for Christmas for my wife kind of, kind of really put me on a path of like, oh, I want to up my game. And, you know, I was using fresh juice and was the only place in Springfield, Missouri that was doing it at the time and making, you know, mojitos and things like that that weren't anywhere, even in the Midwest yet. So so you're from Springfield originally? or I lived there a long time. Lived there a long That's time. That's where I started my career. Gotcha. In this business. So when you had started kind of using fresh juices and things like that, what was that reaction back then? We had a really good response to a lot of people, but it was such a small town. It was a college town. During the week, you know, it was slow. But on the weekend, we ended up winning... Uh, some awards for you know, just having fresh cocktails and and kind of people were noticing that that there was a big difference in in your, the, the approach and even just a small amount that I employed back then made me realize how much I didn't know so that, mm-hmm. that kind of led me to uh, looking to see what else was happening. It sounds crazy, but like when I first got my the first computer in uh, 2004, I realized that there was a I was able to research a lot easier and notice that New York and San Francisco had two of the biggest scenes. And uh, my first trip to New York really set me off. I went to a really famous cocktail bar called Milk and Honey. Mm-hmm. And there was a Flatiron Lounge at that time. Both of those have since closed, but they were two, two really early pioneers. And I saw just how far you could take just not, it wasn't necessarily super creative, but it was just the, all the techniques that go into it and using quality everything and just trying to make the best cocktail every single time um, in the history of it was all fascinating. At the time when you were in New York, did you think this, we could make something work back home? We could do this? I did to a certain extent. I I knew that, I I tried to talk my wife into moving to New York and she said, no way, uh, (laughs) because she didn't want to live in a closet. (laughs) Understandable. And which, that's why we ended up in St. Louis actually. We kind of looked around and like, well, where can I take this concept and I got an offer uh, t- to take over a bar program at a now defunct place called uh, Monarch mm-hmm. in Maplewood. And from the very start, we had a, a th- very different clientele, but there was a lot of them. And every single night you were able to get you know, in front of people and, and th- they would watch how you worked. The fact that you were using, you know, not only employing fresh herbs, but you're measuring and using egg white and just different things that back then people just didn't see. Yeah, I mean, do you remember that time really well in terms of people's reaction to to watching you do that? Yes, it was it was interesting because at the time people were very curious when they were first kind of repulsed by the idea of an egg white, <laughs> and then there's a lot of educating the bartender how to talk about it and you know saying you know well it's just it cooks the egg very much like you know, ceviche and. It's, it emulsifies and that's why it's creamy and it changes mm-hmm. color. And then they'll, they would they would end up they'd be drinking Bud Light and then, and then they would go, oh, let, let me try a Pisco Sour or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Or I'd give them a taste. You know, a lot of tasting and changing people's concept of, of flavor. My, my big go-to back then was when people, did, they heard we hit, had good cocktails, and, but they didn't understand what that meant, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a, a lot of it meant was that it would actually have flavors you know, as, as opposed to a, a vodka soda. Right, right. Which, you know, is fine, but it's just completely different. You're not tasting anything. When people would ask you, mm, okay, I hear you do these cocktails, you know, what should I order? Did you always have it? 
kind of a go-to to help them ease into the idea or? Absolutely. A lot of people, a lot of people have like certain specific things that they will say when, when asked what kind of things that they like. Mm -hmm. And usually it's like, oh, I don't like scotch mm -hmm. or I don't like tequila or no gin. They all, they had a long list of things that in their head they thought that they didn't like. So you get out around that, I always ask them questions about what foods they did like. Mm -hmm. So, so most, a lot of people back then, it was like their immediate response of like, I would anything with vodka, which is fine, but like sometimes if you add savory ingredients to, to the vodka, it still throws them. Mm -hmm. So just to get an idea of how people's palates worked, I would ask them what foods they liked. For instance, one of the big go-tos was if they said Thai food or Indian or something savory like that, they're gonna probably like gin, they just didn't didn't maybe know think, it. Yeah, a certain type of gin will have you know, some of those same flavors. And then when, gin, when you're mixing with gin, you do have some juniper, but that's the only thing that's the, always there. Mm -hmm. And there's different types of juniper. Some of them taste like a bouquet of flowers, or you know, some of them taste like you know pine trees and pine mm -hmm. sap. But it's, 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 you know, it's a balance of what you can kind of put it, uh, on their palate. People will, like, for instance, one drink with Hendrix kind of tasted like red wine. So if they said, well, I drink red wine or I drink mm -hmm. IPAs, it, however I could, could understand how, what, what pleased their palates because understanding how the palate worked and, and what pleasure sensors hit you. doesn't matter what spirit it is that does that as long as it tastes good in, at the end of the day. So, so much of that, was that just you learning as well? I mean, understanding those flavor profiles, understanding what might work with someone's taste buds? I mean, was that just you kind of learning on the job? Or? There, that was some, it was part of it. I worked, I read a lot. I was obsessed with books. I still have about I, I, 200 plus. I still wow. collect. There's still more I, I always want to buy. But uh, that's cookbooks as well as wine books, cherry books, cocktail books, uh, anything I can get my hands on. But back then, uh, one of the biggest things was work. I had an advanced sommelier that, that was the one that hired me for that job, and we were constantly tasting and trying to understand what we were tasting. And once uh, we kind of I went through a lot of wine tastings, and I became like obsessed with like I want to up my game even more. And there was a, a, a new course that came out in 2006, taught by uh, five of the top guys in, in the uh, world at the time, wow. uh, that started called Beverage Alcohol Resource. It was a five-day certification, and uh, they had two different certifications, a bar ready uh, and a bar uh, certification. The bar ready is more nuts and bolts of bartending, so it's a little higher certification. But I luckily got, a, 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 we sold our house, and I had had the money to do it, the course, because mm -hmm. it's very expensive, and it takes a week, and you, have to, you study before. It's sort of a, similar to Advanced uh, sommelier degree it was advanced. Where uh, did you take the mixology. course? New York. It was in New yeah, York. it was at the time. It was at Keene's Steakhouse. It was a really famous steakhouse right by the Empire State Building. Okay, and at the time, um, I mean, did people say to you, "Oh, that seems crazy"? I mean, to be a bartender, you just mix things up. You know, did people think that was odd that you wanted to? take this advanced course? Absolutely. They the, the, luckily, my employers understood that, and um, they supported me 100%. So they gave me time off to study when I finally got my a book. And mm -hmm. at the time, there was way less information out there. Now there's right. tons of stuff, the places that you can study. But one of the things that that did, you had to pass three different parts, um, at least 75%. It was on a sliding scale of, of the highest score to uh, down. But uh, the part of it was understanding the tasting. And, okay. and we tasted 
about 12 to 15 spirits in each category uh, throughout the, the wow. time we did that. And you also like, learned uh, like classic cocktails. Luckily, I I learned a lot of those before, and mm -hmm. was, I, I was terrified I wasn't going to pass. It cost <laughs> me about six grand at the end of the day, Ooh. you know, was, with a course and everything. But I did pass with bar ready certification. I was one, the only one in the Midwest for about probably like three or four years after wow. that that was bar ready certified. It took a while for people to understand like the, the course could be like something that really could kind of catapult you to a different level. It also teaches you that you can never stop learning. Mm -hmm. Did you find that then it made you much more valuable? I mean, to have that kind of idea of being the only person with this certification within the Midwest, did did others then start reaching out to you or was it still a yes. slow growth? It, it actually led to me doing a lot more. I do, do, I've done consulting for brands and it also led to me traveling uh, more with uh, like Tales of the Cocktails, one of the things I did. In, um, the same year I went to New York, I, I attended Tales of the Cocktail, which is one of the, it's the, one of the first craft uh, spirits and cocktails convention. It's mm -hmm. still going on. I think it's in its 16th year. Oh, wow. But I, I've been to it nine times, I believe. I worked uh, uh, probably about six out of those nine mm -hmm. uh, years, either for brands or I, I was what's called a cocktail apprentice. Okay. Uh, where you work the entire event, and you get uh, basically you're working from 8 a.m. to uh, 2 to 3 a.m. in the morning. Oh, wow. Well, I say work. Some of it was actually brand parties. Sure. So, well, but, you know, you know hey. you're networking. <laughs> you're networking so, exactly. <laughs> uh, the, it, back in, in those days, there's a lot of people that helped start the cocktail thing, and there were there were bloggers, and there's a guy named Dr. Cocktail, who, Ted Haig, who wrote a book. In the early days about vintage and classic cocktails and those guys were there then you could walk up and hang out with them at the mm -hmm. bar the first year i kind of got into because of dale de Graff, he's called this king cocktail he's a legend in the business and he's one of the gentlemen that is the instructor at the bar uh five day mm -hmm. uh, but he's been around for a long time so i was able to just like walk up and talk to these guys back then and you know they'll still stop and chat me up wow. every once in a while but gaz regan is someone else that was really inspirational he's published a lot of my recipes uh, actually helped kind of gave me some infamy with one that he published in 2008 I believe in the uh, San Francisco Chronicle it's called a purgatory and that cocktail is kind of cool it's, it's kind of traveled been published multiple times and been in a book as well as actually two books what uh, was that like to see your recipe published was that your first one uh, second second but okay. but both of them were for Gaz uh, Regan and mm -hmm. he, he's had since published quite a few more He's probably published the most of mine. He, he writes a lot, and uh, he writes for different publications as well as his blog. But, um, yeah, it was, it was cool. I, mean, I just Google it every once in a while. It's, it's made its way from uh, uh, Paris, Stockholm, um, Amsterdam. It's been on menus in Hong Kong and as well as as far away as uh, uh, Australia, just north of Melbourne. Wow. So it's, it's, it's cool to think that people are you know, enjoying that elsewhere. So how did you start then going from, okay, studying cocktails, learning all this, and, and into that idea of creating and crafting your own, or were you always creating and crafting? I was trying. Like, there's one particularly bad cocktail that I created, but the very first time I did a menu and, and for a martini bar, uh, which we, it was martini was a loose term, because mm -hmm. it was anything in a V-shaped glass. Right. And it's actually still on like one of those big websites that has like, huge thousands of drinks mm -hmm. that they're more like 
you know, it's kind of nightclub-y drinks, sure. but yeah. uh, it's kind of kind of funny because it's still on menu. Actually, I won't say who has it on there, but <laughs> it's still on a menu for, of a chain in in St. Louis. Oh, so okay. somehow it made its way up here. Interesting. Crazy. But you didn't, but you weren't happy with that. Uh, I, th- it was there was a definite learning curve. Yeah. You know, it's like you, you I th- learn as you go along, like what brands. I, I, I'm really big into like believing in all my brands. So although I have 500 spirits back here, I know the backstory of every single one. Wow. Um, and know the flavor profile. We don't carry a lot of the big brands, not because they not great quality. It's just it's that it doesn't represent. A backstory that you know, mm-hmm. I feel confident and proud to serve to my customers. So we have mm-hmm. brands that they come in here, they trust. That I've worked a long time to earn people's trust that they go. They, they may not know what this brand is, but mm-hmm. they know you, the bartenders can tell them. Well, this is from this company, and you know I've, I've actually have a lot of places I've uh, my wife and I have visited, and we mm-hmm. know the personal relationships with the distillers. Like one of my favorites has been around for I think about 15 years. She was her husband was just in here, North Shore uh, Distilleries out of Chicago. Oh, wow. There's great people, and I keep my their stuff on my menu every all the time because you know they're good people, and I want I want to support them. So it's a, there's a lot of that that goes around. Why is that story? Why is that backstory important to you? And and to have it at the bar. Not only do you have to like make great cocktails, I think that each ingredient has to play a part. And when people ask you about them, you have to know exactly like what it is, how it's going to taste. So a lot of it's like describing wine. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about, uh, if you can describe eloquently what that cocktail is going to taste like, and uh, yes, it has uh, you know, Pierre Fraud dry curacao, which is a cognac base, was, was created by Dave Wondrich, one of the foremost cocktail historians in, in, in the country, mm-hmm. uh, as well as... Uh, the master distiller from Pierre Ferrand, and uh, actually, I have, I've been there. I've seen this process, and it was created to, to be something historically, you know, accurate for the mid 1800s. Tastes, like, you know, like a, a spiced orange, uh, a little cinnamon, and you know, if you just give them like a backstory and can talk about it sure. in, in a manner that you know gets them excited about it, uh, 90% of the time, people will like enjoy what they are drinking because it's it's unique. And that, I think, is one of the biggest shifts we really saw when we talk about getting into this whole, the idea of craft cocktails is that people want to know more about the story behind it, what the ingredients were, as opposed to just saying, I'll have a Jack and Coke kind of thing. Did you feel like you really got to witness that shift here in St. Louis? Definitely. It was, it's been, in the 20 years plus that I've been in this business, the whole game has changed. You'll have a lot of places that maybe the bartenders have ingredients that are available to them that they probably just take for granted because mm-hmm. it wasn't available. I mean, there was no Cokie Americano. There was no Crim de Violette for uh, proper aviation. There was, like, a lot of these things that just didn't exist because uh, no one was looking for them and they wouldn't sell. But now mm-hmm. there's people resurrecting uh, uh, archaic spirits and Amaro's are huge. Even the, most bars have at least you know four or five. Uh, you know, Amaro was something that back in the day, back the, not. no. I mean, <laughs> I remember the first time. Even like ingredients like green chartreuse and fernet, which are standards in every bar now, like nobody carried them. Even if you go back to Springfield, Missouri, there's probably a handful of bars now that that do. But mm-hmm. like a lot of them, just they don't carry it because no one asks for it. No one's right. drinking it. Um, but slowly it's making, it's, you know, it's, it's happening. That's a, a, just a standard for people to have for that, which is tastes like you're chewing on mint and twigs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, it's people's palates. 
it's a journey. Like mm -hmm. he, even even mine still looks like it's, it, it progresses as things kind of click. If you taste a new new product, you're like, oh, that I've never tasted that. Uh, a tomorrow that tastes like pine and blueberries. You know, it's just like, mm. and then talking about that story, and that's Prosubio, which uh, I wrote about, my wife and I wrote about it in Sauce like last summer, because it was very intriguing. It's like made with uh, green pine cones and blueberry wine in wow. uh, the Trento region of Italy. It's very unique, and it's something that's been passed, the recipe has been passed down uh, for like, you know, 100 years. But wow. very few people, you know, get to taste that. When, but when you would describe that to someone, I mean, would the initial reaction be just, ah, I'm not sure about that. And how do you cross that, that threshold to get them to say, all right, let's, let's just give it a shot. Everything is rooted in the classics, like mm -hmm. everything. So do, if people are unsure, you're like, well, do you like Manhattan-like drinks? This cocktail has prosubio, which is like light, uh, light pine notes as well as uh, blueberry, but it's very much like a, uh, you know, a Manhattan, mm -hmm. you know, because it's got ex bourbon or whatever. So everything is including the classics. Right now, our, menu, our, our seasonal menu, we do a seasonal menu that we change twice a year. That's mm -hmm. 18 cocktails, 100% new every time. Wow. And then we have a Planner's House Classics that stays mostly the same. It's drinks that people just keep asking for over and over again. And then we have a new classic section, which pretty much stays the same, which is like drinks that have become well-known uh, in the last 10 to 15 years. What would be some examples of a new classic? Uh, some examples, uh, Fitzgerald is one of our top sellers. It was uh, created by Del DeGroff, uh, and it was a very simple riff on a, on a, a gin sour. So he just added uh, Angostura bitters to a gin sour and called it the Fitzgerald after F. Fitz, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, at the Rainbow Room, like 1998, I think. Hmm. I had to look at the menu somewhere for <laughs> sure. But it's a it's a simple riff, but the Angostura make changes the whole nature of that cocktail, and people it's really refreshing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but at the heart, it's just you know it's something that's gotten really big uh, around the country, and people recognize it. Mm -hmm. uh, same with uh, like the old Cuban is like a sparkling mojito by Audrey Saunders, which she created. In the early 2000s, for the Carlisle uh, in uh, New York, when she, when she was working at, and she was an understudy of Del Groff, but it, it's gotten so popular that every bartender in a cocktail bar will know if you ask for uh, these cocktails. So I'm so fascinated. How do you think it works? I mean, how does it work to have one of these ideas of a new classic? Um, you know, if if you create a, a cocktail, what makes it go from just being on on your menu to then? Being something that's recognized, travel. yeah, travel. The biggest thing is is uh, having something that creating something that's really good that people want to have a second, mm -hmm. as well as having ingredients are simplistic that any bar will have. Oh, okay. So a lot of people will, will create things for whatever if it's a restaurant or bar or, or you know even like I've consulted on other. Uh, restaurants and, and bars and brands but I always try to bring it back for like if, especially if you're looking at like brand work where they're using stuff for their website is it accessible mm -hmm. can they take this then and like give it to a bar go hey yeah you can th this drink is great you can put it on your menu um, with uh, Larceny or whatever brand that uh, they're trying to get placed and it's very simple. It's like three ingredients or mm -hmm. four ingredients, and simplicity is key. And 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 even ingredients that are like a little trendy. Like here, my most famous like kind of new classic regionally is called in a pickle, which I created about nine years ago, uh, totally out of bar choice. A girl just said she liked 
uh, pickles at, at Taste by Niche, the original uh -huh. uh, taste. Um, but that drink at the time sold really well, but I took it off the menu eventually. Um, when I, I left Were you surprised taste. that that one I was did so well? I was surprised. I mean, no, nothing had ever taken off that much. It, it, the, the first year, the, in 2011, I think, we, they were selling like over, we were selling over 500 at the uh, Taste in the Central West End. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I was really surprised that when I, we opened Planner's House that uh, I didn't make that for two years. And then finally, when I, I redid my menu, we added that new classic section because people were just asking for a lot of these drinks. Mm -hmm. so, and it was one of the best things I did because like now the menu sells. It's like if you're adventurous, you're gonna go for a new, new uh, or, uh, the new drinks like mm -hmm. the seasonal. But then the Inner Pickle was like one of those that when we put it by on, it immediately was our top seller or wow. one or two, and it's never. It's in three years. It's now that I don't think it's ever not number one. It has for about a year and a half. It's it's excelled ahead of everything. It's most drinks. Our next the Manhattan uh, Planners House style sells about. Uh, 250, 300, and the and a pickle sells like 450 to 500, like wow. every month, like That's without even in the winter. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, it is what it is. I mean, people now we do it by the picture. I just I, I'm still surprised that it continues to grow to do that well. Yeah. You mentioned taste. So, how did you connect with Gerard and and go over to, and start working at Taste? It was kind of randomly. I'd heard he was opening a place, and I. Saw, I looked it up online, and I was just kind of looking for something that was a little more cocktail-centric. Mm -hmm. And at, at the time, I, I didn't see anything else happening. And I, I was happy at Monarch, but they, they, we did a lot. There was more wine than we did cocktails. Mm -hmm. And I was looking for It was huge. And I wanted something that was more like I could connect with people on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And that mm -hmm. was certainly it at Taste by Niche because there was only 15 seats. But... Uh, I just emailed him and you know, I interviewed with, with him like you a, just a sent day him an email? Yeah. Just, hey, I'm Ted. Yeah, he, well, he'd sat at my bar before, so I knew okay. who he was. And okay. I dined at his restaurant and mm -hmm. I knew that you know, I was interested in the, the idea of, of the, such intimacy because mm -hmm. that was, and that's what probably every craft bartender like wants. That's one of the reasons why like I have two spaces is like I wanted something to be more intimate and then something that we could do a volume so we wouldn't be turning people away. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so it was. It was very quick. I, I, it was such a small space. It went from having like, again, five hundred seats or so. it was. I guess it was more like three hundred seats in Monarch, but the bar had like thirty. Mm -hmm. We went down to just fifteen in the whole space. But that was a very. It was. A, it was a good time. It was only there a year and a half before we decided to relocate it because it was. It was uh, popular, but we wanted to do a bigger version that, mm -hmm. again, more accessible to people. But uh, yeah, it was, it was I've spent four years with uh, the niche inter enterprise. What do you think was the biggest lessons that you learned in those years that you were there? I think the, one of the biggest things was a lot of, of concepts. You can have like, great food and, and, and great drink, but if, uh, if people don't like, understand, taste when we first opened it was like we were struggling to get people in the door because they didn't understand what we were doing because mm -hmm. we had a bigger audience walking uh, like foot traffic mm -hmm. in the central west end but it took a little bit of education and that was you know like how how to a lot of business like sense i think because we were I was a lot more involved with like, a lot of the numbers and like making try to make that spot successful and actually make money so it's it's kind of it was a, a lot of more number crunching than i'd ever done before which mm -hmm. was cool 
and they gave me a lot of, of, of freedom, still behind the bar, and, and the spirits, we were able to, to grow, and I got to, to taste a, a lot more stuff, and that was when the, the steam was whole, all blowing up with right. unique ingredients that we didn't have to work with before, because suddenly, you know, stuff, you could, I could only buy in New York, and I was having shipped in, was hitting the market, so it was, it was cool, we were constantly trying to be the first to use all these new, unique ingredients, but... Uh, yeah, the business side of it, I think, was one of the most important and how just how important it was to make the entire space, like, beautiful and mm -hmm. the entire cocktail experience has to be start right at the door. You know, it has to start how you're treating your customer coming through the door and, and, and you know, not having an ego about any, any of it, but trying to just stay focused on giving people a really good experience uh, top to bottom. Uh, you, you can make great cocktails, but if there's something music or visually like unappetizing then people aren't going to come back repeatedly you know well do you think there's also um an aspect of having a cocktail bar in st louis in the midwest versus someplace like new york and the idea of making it more approachable making it so it's not an experience where someone feels turned off because they don't understand what you know five out of the six ingredients are right that's that, that's a big trick to it. That, that's always been a trick here, especially in the early days. That was one of the, one of the reasons why when we did open, I was able to open Planner's House, we wanted it to be someplace, somebody could just come in and get a beer and a shot and not feel left out. So we, we actually have uh, what we call beer and bond, which is bond of whiskey, a shot of bond of whiskey and an eight ounce beer for five bucks. So it's like we can run the gamut. That's actually being approachable and an approachable price point that, uh, actually, it was one of the things I learned at, at, at uh, Taste for sure. We turned basically the happy hour that we added, which, which was a, it's still on their, their menu, is a list of classics that we were selling for six bucks at the time. And these aren't drinks, drinks that are necessarily super easy to make. I mean, a good cocktail doesn't take forever, but it does take a little investment in time. Well, uh, and we were selling Ramos Gin Fizzes, which are notoriously hard to make, which because it's an egg white drink and mm -hmm. there's like six ingredients. For, for six bucks. Yeah. But I figured if I can get people to drink these cocktails for six bucks to start with, then they're going to eventually start drinking the ones that are, you know, 10 or 11 mm -hmm. if they understand. And I can get them to take a chance on a $6 old fashioned, and they, which they'd never had before. Uh, and and we'll like probably it. change their mind exactly. about what an old fashioned exactly. tastes like. And it worked. And it worked almost, almost, almost overnight. I remember the first Sunday we did all day happy hour. I was in Kansas City and, and my uh, bar manager, the, the floor manager at the time, um, like texted me and said that the, the place was crazy. And they, I think we did, we went from doing like 1200 that night. I think we did like 3000, wow. something like that. But it, and then they just keep coming back. And I think they still do a, they haven't, haven't taken it away. It's still, no, still it's happening. Still there. So. I think it's a dollar more. I think it's $7 yeah. now. Um, but yeah, it's still an incredible deal. And so when did you realize it was time for you to open your own spot and how did Planner's House really come to be? It, it it was really working with the whole opening of the second taste, the kind of going through the process. I had opened places for other people before, but I just had an epiphany. I was like, well, I keep working for other people. I, I turned 45, and I was like, well, when I'm 50, like, what, where do I want to be? Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to move out of town. And I had this idea for the Player's House concept. It, it kind of came about when I was, I was looking at some of my vintage books, and I... I was looking at the oldest book I, I have, which is an 1884 second printing of 
Jerry Thomas's um, um, guide. His 1864 book uh, was um, the the first kind of cocktail book that everyone says the first cocktail mm -hmm. book. But the reprinting actually had listed his, his where he'd worked. So it said mm -hmm. the Metropolitan Hotel in New York and the Planters House Hotel in St. Louis, and that sort of spurred an idea of a concept that you know, had two different bars, Planters House which was one of the most famous bars. And Jerry Thomas actually worked you know, there for, for two years. And probably some of the cocktails in the, the book he wow. came up with and or refined here. Mm -hmm. uh, and then tying that in with you know, the Tom Bullock story. So, How that, did you decide on this location? I actually did the concept first. And that was the first time I'd ever written a business plan, <laughs> which I didn't write all of it, mostly my business partner, Ted Sherrick and, and Jamie did the numbers and I, but I had, I did the concept f first. And so when we did the concept and we did all the business plan and the numbers, we had a firm idea of, we wanted about 60 seats in a, a, a separate room that was going to be volume. And then we wanted about a 34, 30, 34 seat bar that we could do classes and, and have like a more intimate experience mm -hmm. depending on what people like. So the concept itself I had dead set. And we, this is the first place we looked at, and we looked for another month, and we kept coming back to this place. I was like, really? <laughs> 60 seats down here, we can fit 30 up here, and it's, it's two separate be. places. And then our landlord, who was very integral in helping us open, um, it's like, well, the patio is bonus. So, what was this before? It This building was been a lot of things, but mostly what we can tell has been bars. Okay. I, th I think that. The feeling I got this uh, down one side was built in, uh, around 1840, and this was built in 1870. Mm -hmm. but, but I get the feeling that it was probably like bars and possibly like hardware or something like that, mm -hmm. uh, as as well as possibly people were living in upper levels. Mm -hmm. But the last two businesses that were in here were both bars in the early 80s. Gotcha. So some of the stuff we thought had, had was the original, like this floor was actually put in in the early 80s. So this floor is actually vintage, and it's it's one of the more difficult things to work with. We luckily found a guy that uh, helped us repair it. We had to find. You we can barely tell found how thin the boards are. That yeah, they're real small uh, boards, but mm -hmm. yeah, it was. Uh, it, it's been mostly bars. We had when we were working doing construction, which we did a, a lot as much as we could our, ourselves. Um, people just wander in and go, "Hey, I remember I lived here as a kid in the, oh, um, really? the third floor." It was a uh, whatever, a church, or it was Salvation Army. It was just like random stories. One guy showed up and started talking about how it was haunted. <laughs> and um, one guy showed up uh, and said that his grandmother owned this in Prohibition and ran books out of here and used to walk by some construction workers and she'd always carry a hammer in her newspaper and protect herself. <laughs> it was a lot of story after story. I mean, that kind of fits so well in terms of you know, kind of keeping that history alive, whether it's through this building, whether it's through your cocktail menu. I mean, how important is that for you to keep that history going? Well, I, I hope to, with, with Planner's House, to make it something that St. Louis as a city could be uh, proud of, to kind of say, hey, you know, not only do we have a good cocktail scene now, but we actually had, like, worked on it in the beginning, it's very infancy, when people you know, didn't know what it was, and some of the most famous people in the country did work here and, and helped with the first golden age, and now we're bringing it back. That was sort of like my overall 
idea and goal for Planner's House. Do you think we are seeing that second golden age now of cocktails? And, and where do you think it goes from here? Uh, we're definitely, it's, it's still on the upswing. But there's bars it, 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 all have their own life form. So cocktail bars are just one set. So depending on what you're looking for, you can get pretty much anything. I think St. Louis is a good, good like, eclectic mix of every type of bar. Sometimes, you know, you don't want a cocktail. You just want a beer. You know, tons of beer bars. But I, as far as cocktail bars, and like, especially, like, fine dining bar programs, mm-hmm. I see them continuing to grow because there's still a lot of people that, around that are being brought on board now that haven't had uh, an experience with Amaro or, or uh, Manhattan or, like, something that has ingredients that you created, flavor, flavors that you've never seen. Every time we do a menu now, we're on a, this is our 10th seasonal, and I try to push to do things that we've never done before. So we've added, we've added So you're more. not running out of ideas yet? Well, uh, this last menu was probably <laughs> the hardest. We went through more versions of cocktails than we ever have. But that, that being said, I'm, I'm, I'm still, every time, I'm, I'm the most proud. It's like, you know, it's, we've, we've added a lot of scientific things. There's, molecular mixology is a whole different category. In my mind, but science uh, being able to help us with the science and cooking uh, has kind of showed bartenders that they can use tools like sous vide infusion, mm-hmm. um, as well as we just added a uh, the only tabletop centrifuge. It's a culinary centrifuge. It's called a Spinzol. It was created what by. Does that even mean? Yeah. It's it's yeah. So you can clarify things. You can infuse <laughs> things real fast. We have like clarified juice, like grapefruit and orange juice, mm. that we're using because those are generally speaking they go bad fast as well as they're really so usually sweeter. Mm-hmm. So you're able to alter those and make them the shelf life longer as well as make them actually bright and and, and tastier. So we're doing in a lot of house made liqueurs, um, things that we. You just don't have the opportunity to see other places. So it, it, it's also for us, you know, seeing where we can take it. I think that's a lot of places are trying to challenging themselves to like do things that they haven't done before. We're we're fortunate here since I've been around a long time. It's been seeing the same things a long time. Like I said, people trust when they come in here that they'll have a good experience, but they'll also have. A, a new experience if they want with a cocktail or they'll have a favorite like the in a pickle mm-hmm. um, I, that's what it's all about having things to help people have a good time and maybe if they want to expand their horizons they can if they uh, just want to have a good drink and enjoy the atmosphere with friends they can that's it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. We hope it gives you some inspiration for your next happy hour, your next time mixing up a great cocktail. If you enjoyed this episode, which we hope you did, please head over to iTunes, uh, subscribe to the Meet St. Louis podcast, leave us a review and give us a rating. It really helps others discover the Meet St. Louis podcast, which we want everyone to know all the great things that are happening across St. Louis. This episode was produced and edited by J.J. Bailey.